If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we are in a series uh, on the final week of Jesus Christ. We have chronologically arrived at uh, this last week of Jesus' ministry and teaching. This is the last week. Uh, this this the last week of crisis between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, and so today we continue our series called "The Final Steps." This third message is entitled Three Rejections," and so we're looking at Matthew, the end of Matthew twenty-one, beginning of Matthew twenty-two, to cover these three stories. Now, most people, unfortunately, can relate to rejection. At some point in our lives. We have been rejected by somebody. Uh, when, when we were kids or teenagers, we might have been rejected by somebody we really liked. We thought we were in love with them. At eight years old, we were sure they were going to be the person that we married. And yet they did not feel the same way, and we wondered, what is wrong with you? Clearly nothing is wrong with me. I'm wonderful, but something is wrong with you that you don't love me the way I love you. And so we deal with rejection. Uh, Some of us might have been rejected for a job that we wanted or a promotion we felt like we had earned and we were sure we were going to get, and yet somebody else got it. If we needed a loan, we might have been rejected by the bank. Rejection hurts, it stings, it's painful. Rejection is not fun or desirable. Nobody stands in line and says, I want to be rejected today. But it is part of our human experience. The religious leaders in Jesus' day, they had rejected John the Baptist's ministry, and they rejected Jesus' ministry as well. And these religious leaders, they saw the miracles. They heard John teach about righteousness, about repentance. They heard Jesus teach. They saw the miracles. They saw the fruit of righteousness through the changed lives of people, and yet they still rejected the messengers. And in response, Jesus shared three stories in Matthew 21 and 22 that revealed how the people of God had rejected God himself. So let's look at the first parable. It's called the parable of the two sons. It's Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. We're going to see the first example by Jesus as he spoke to these self-righteous religious leaders in Jerusalem. He said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first, and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And that son said, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, and they being the religious leaders, they said, the first Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you do. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now the story starts off really simply. 
While one said he wouldn't go, he changed his mind and went. The other son said he would go, but he changed his mind and didn't. Jesus' question is a simple one. Which one did, which son did the right thing? Which son would have been considered by the father as obedient? Nobody in the crowd would dispute what the right answer was. Obviously, the son that realized the error of his ways changed his mind. We could even attach the spiritual term repented because that means to change one's mind. He went and he did what the father asked him to do. The second son proved himself to be a liar and a hypocrite, a person who knew what was right. He knew what the father's will was, and yet he refused to do it. Now, I can even imagine them all nodding them, their heads in agreement with Jesus, you know, as he's telling the first part of the story. They're like, hey, man, this guy makes a good point. But then Jesus, as he so often did, turned up the heat on them. He said one of the most outrageous things to these religious leaders. He compared them to the son who knew the will of the father, said they would do it, and then rebelled against him. Meanwhile, the hated tax collectors and prostitutes who were notorious sinners yet changed and repented of their evil ways and started producing the fruit of righteousness represented the obedient son in Jesus' story. And then he said, guess what? If there's a line to get in, the tax collectors and prostitutes are way ahead of you. Now, this was shocking and insulting to them. This definitely would have angered these religious leaders. And so in your bulletin, you have a handout. You can take some notes. So the first rejection demonstrated the rejection of the father. This first story demonstrates a rejection of the father. The religious elite knew the scriptures. They knew what the Bible said about how God desires compassion and mercy and justice He wants a humble people, not arrogant and proud. He has never wanted hollow worship, where we worship with our voices but not with our hearts. The Father has given us commands to follow. And it's not enough to say you'll obey, but then not actually follow through. James said, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Our faith should move us to action. And if it doesn't, then it's dead and worthless faith. The Pharisees did what many Christians do today. They know the will of God. They know what God wants, but they constantly disobey. They go to church. They might even read their Bibles and pray much like the religious leaders did. But when it comes to actions, they reveal they have not yielded their hearts to God, and they're just going through the motions. And it's dangerous to behave this way because we know we're not fooling God. He knows the true condition of our hearts. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And our actions must line up with our words or we're just hypocrites. 
As I said last week regarding the unfruitful fig tree, when Jesus approaches us, he's looking for fruit. It's not enough to have the, just the outward appearance of fruitfulness. We must have the actual fruit being produced through works of righteousness. The first rejection revealed how they had rejected the Father. Let's continue the story with Jesus, verses 33 through 39 in Matthew 21. Jesus said, here another parable. I'm sure they were like, no, the first one was good enough. He's like, no, let's keep going. Here another parable. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when, they, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In this story, the master of the house is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. And, and the Old Testament repeatedly, uh, on many occasions, refers to Israel as a vineyard, a choice vine. And so this vineyard that represents Israel has been carefully prepared by God. To be abundantly fruitful, he's given them everything they need in order to bear fruit. He built a fence around it. He put a tower inside the vineyard, meaning that he was protecting it from its enemies, that he was establishing security for them so they would feel safe. They would have no reason not to uh, be fruitful. There was no reason to fear. And when he leased it to the tenants, that meant that he had turned it over to them to produce the fruit of righteousness. He expected them to be faithful with what they had been entrusted with. So when God sent his servants to inspect the fruit, and these servants were prophets, priests, leaders, they abused, attacked, and killed them. The people didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to be convicted. They would rather stay in their own error, their own self-righteous attitudes, than deal with the reality that they were not living up to the standard of a holy God. And when prophet after prophet, leader after leader had been rejected and killed, God finally sent his son to them. He thought that surely the Messiah they had waited for, longed for, prayed for, would be accepted by them. But that wasn't their response. Their hearts revealed they didn't want a Messiah. They really just wanted Moses. They wanted the law, not grace. They wanted to be self-righteous instead of truly righteous. They wanted lawbreakers to be condemned, not forgiven. So Jesus predicted his own rejection, betrayal, and death at the hands of these people. The second rejection demonstrated the rejection 
of the Son. That's what the second parable is all about. The rejection of the Son. Jesus, in this story, when he finishes telling the story, he asks them, what do you think the master, the owner of the vineyard, will do when he comes himself? And he sees how they have behaved, how they have killed his servants and then killed his son. The religious leaders said that the owner of the vineyard would punish and expel those people who behaved this way by rejecting the son. Because when they rejected the son, they were rejecting the rightful owner and the, the master, the owner of the, the vineyard. So when, G, when people reject Jesus, the son of God, they're also rejecting God the father. And Jesus prophesied to these religious leaders that God would take away his kingdom from them and give it to a people who were willing to produce the fruit of righteousness. Again, this would be shocking. These men were so thoroughly convinced they were right, they wouldn't even take correction from the Messiah himself. We need to ensure that we don't do the same as them. We need to be willing to have our ideologies and our opinions challenged when they do not line up with the word of God. We don't change the word to agree with how we want to live. We change how we live in order to line up with the word of God. It's painful. It's difficult. God's word exposes our pride. It exposes our hypocrisy. It exposes our self-righteous opinions. And that hurts. But it's necessary if we're going to be a people who will follow Christ's example. Finally, let's look at Jesus' last parable, the parable of the wedding feast. It's Matthew 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. In this culture, a wedding feast was a community-wide event. Can you imagine feeding your entire neighborhood, your entire subdivision when you have a wedding? Plus, you have all your family coming in. You, it makes you really realize that uh, you wished you were more of an introvert and didn't know so many people. <clears throat> but it was a community-wide event. And it would have lasted a whole week. You have to feed these people for a whole week. Normally, two invitations were sent out when banquets were given. The first invitation asked the guests to attend, and the second invitation announced the banquet was ready. And in this story, the king invited the guests three times in this parable. Now, a wedding banquet was this huge event and one that everybody would have come out for because, hey, who doesn't like free food, especially when it's good free food? 
But this was no ordinary wedding. This was a wedding for the king's son. To be invited was a huge honor. And you would have never missed this opportunity. You know the food is going to be really good at this wedding. And yet, look how the people responded in this story. Some ignored the messengers. Some walked away and went back to work. Some grabbed the messengers and beat them, humiliated them, and killed some of them. This would be unthinkable. To reject the messengers was to reject the king himself. The king had sent three invitations, and they had rejected every single one of them. So this third rejection demonstrated their rejection of the Holy Spirit. Demonstrated the rejection of the Holy Spirit. The first story, the rejection of the Father. The second story, the rejection of the Son. And this story, the rejection of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How does the Father draw someone to himself? Through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit convicts us of our sin. We feel the tug of the Holy Spirit on our hearts when we're about to do something we know we shouldn't do. There were times in my life where I really wanted to buy something. And we didn't. We had the money technically, but we, it was really going to put us in a bind. And I can't even describe the feeling that I would get when I would sense the Holy Spirit say, don't do that. Don't buy that. That's going to put you in a difficult spot. And I'm like, but pushing that purchase button feels so good. It just, it brings joy. Jesus, don't you want me to have joy? And it's so easy. I don't have to go to the store now. I don't have to deal with high-pressure salespeople. I'm my own high-pressure salesperson. Like, but I just, I want it, Jesus. And when I would buy it, I would, it's just this feeling I would get where I would feel the Holy Spirit say, that was a mistake. And he told me ahead of time, it's not like he waited for me to mess up to tell me I've made a mistake. You know, there are times when we get tempted and we feel the Holy Spirit say, don't do it. Don't do it. And yet we're like, but we want to. I believe it was James who says we're, we're led away by our own lusts. We let ourselves be led away from the truth. To believe a lie that this sin, this thing is going to enhance our life. It's going to make us happy and make us fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit is saying, it won't. It's hollow. It's empty. It's a deception of the enemy. It's a lie. It will not produce what you want it to produce for you. And so the Holy Spirit is working in us and speaking to us and trying to help us grow through righteousness. And when God speaks, that is not something that we should ignore. Our responsibility as people of the Spirit is to yield to the Holy Spirit. We must, surrender, we must live surrendered lives. You're not living a surrendered life if you're constantly asserting your own will, your own wants, your own desires to God. Saying, I know you want me to do this, but I would rather do this. Just imagine, for those of you that have teenagers or have raised teenagers, 
and you have a teenager and you tell them, take out the trash, for instance, a common occurrence happens twice a week in our household. You say, take out the trash, and they say, I heard what you said. I'd rather just play video games. And you say, well, this isn't about what you want. It's about the house will smell like trash. You have a chore to do. Take out the trash. I hear you. I hear you. And you make a solid point. But how about I don't? What would your response be? Now, for some of you, you were raised in the era of that would create a backhanded motion across someone's uh, head or whatever. Um, <laughs> some of you, that would create a, an opportunity to, to remove your belt or get a switch or uh, yank the power cord of said Xbox out of the wall or take the internet router and smash it on the floor. I, you would have a, a, a host of desires and not sure which one you would choose in that moment, but I would doubt that you would take such a statement from your teenager. Would you allow a, a child of yours to speak to you that way, to willfully disobey? Yeah, Lolly gets it. She's like, mm, not, nope. And yet, and yet, this is how we behave with the Lord. He tells us what to do, and we make excuse after excuse after excuse to not do what he wants us to do. I was, uh, yesterday here, we had a quinceanera, which is a big 15th birthday party for a young lady, and uh, it's it's a big, big deal, and, and I talk to her about that the world is going to constantly pull you away. The world is going to constantly lead you into temptation. And God has a standard set not to make your life difficult, but to make your life better. He hasn't set up all of these rules and guidelines to make us, uh, to, 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 to make us live a terrible life. He's done it to protect us from the danger of sin the danger of allowing the enemy to just do whatever he wants to do. Scripture says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Those are his primary reasons for coming after you. Any, any temptation you endure, any promise he gives you is a false and empty promise. It's a lie. He is not coming to fulfill you. He is not coming to make your life better. He is coming to destroy you, to destroy your family, and to destroy what God wants to do through you. So when you constantly listen to the voice of the enemy and you do what the enemy wants you to do, you are believing a lie. How do we yield to the Holy Spirit? That, because that's our responsibility, is to yield to the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you three ways that we respond, that we, that we can yield to the Holy Spirit. The first is do what he chooses for you to do. Do what he chooses for you to do. You know what happens in, in my household if my son were to come to me and say, Without being asked, I'm going to take out the trash. I'd be like, look at you, being a good son. He knows it's got to go out. Now, he does need to be reminded what days of the week that it needs to go out, but it's okay. He knows what needs to be done. He knows the will of his father is not to live in a house that smells like garbage. 
And so do, if he, if he chooses to do what I want him to do, what he knows that my will is, that makes him a good son and it makes me happy. I feel like, all right, we're, we're making progress. When we have a relationship with God, we need to do what he chooses for us to do, not because he wants to make our life hard, but because he wants to make our life better. Someone once said that God will speak loud enough for a willing soul to hear. God will speak loud enough for a willing soul to hear. That means if you're unwilling, if you're unsurrendered, if you're asserting your own desires, you won't be able to hear his voice because you're drowning him out with all of your noise. Me, 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 me. If you go back and you read the two passages, there's one in Isaiah and one in Ezekiel, and it talks about the fall of Lucifer. It talks about Satan's fall from heaven. And, and the, one of the passages, I think it's in Ezekiel, and it talks about how um, it, it, it kind of gives a, a dialogue of what Satan said in heaven. I will ascend. I will raise my throne. I, I, I. And, and when we start talking about what I want and what I desire and what makes me happy, we are using the enemy's language. Because it's not about what I want. It's about what accomplishes the will of the Father. And what accomplishes the will of the Father is often a difficult task. He doesn't typically ask us to do anything easy. Because if, we, if it was easy, he would, we wouldn't need him. We could just do it ourselves. He wants to be involved in the process. And so, I, I've said it before, I think I actually said it last week, that our prayer must not be, God, bless what I'm doing, but instead, God, I want to do what you're blessing. We need to know his mind, to know his heart, to know his will, and then have the courage to step out in faith. Courage is not the absence of fear, it's the faith-filled attitude to step out anyway. To step out when God says to step, even though we don't have everything lined up. If we waited until everything got lined up, we would never really do much of anything. When you asked your, for those of you that are married, when you asked your spouse to marry you, there was still probably some nervousness. Even though you might have talked about marriage before, you might have said, you might have had some conversations, there's the reality of rejection. They, they might not be ready. They might love you and, and want to marry you, but the time's not right or whatever. And so when you ask somebody to marry you, there could still be some rejection. And for some of us, uh, like myself, we totally shocked our girlfriend when it was time to pop the question. She had no idea I was going to pop the question. And it was in front of her whole family. And it was being recorded on video. And it would have been super awkward if she had said to me, I like you, but I just don't think we're there yet. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's stepping out in faith, regardless of the fear. There's... An expression that many Christians say, God will never give you more than you can handle. You heard that? Some of you may have said it. I probably have said it at some point. God will never give you more than you can handle. That is an untrue statement, 
And I can now give you 66 books worth of examples to disprove it. But for time's sake, I'll give you just one and you can read the the other 66 books worth on your own. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he led them to an impossible situation. The Red Sea was in front of them. Pharaoh's army was behind them. And they had mountains on both sides. He literally boxed them in so that they had nowhere to go. They were afraid and they were worried that they would be destroyed because they had no weapons to defend themselves against the armies. They had no rock climbing equipment to scale the mountains and be safe. They didn't have any boats or jet skis in order to skim across the water and get everybody onto the other side safely. God literally gave them more than they could handle for one important reason. It's the same reason that he gives you more than you can handle, and that is for you to come to the end of yourself and completely surrender to him and depend on him. You will never learn what it is like to truly and completely depend on God for everything until you have had one of those moments that is more than you can handle. You'll always lean on your own strength. You'll always lean on your own abilities. You'll always lean on your own talents. You'll always lean on your own understandings. And yet scripture tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 the opposite. It tells us trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It does not say he will make your paths easy. It does not say he will make your path pain-free. It doesn't say that everybody will like you and that you'll never have any opposition or any problems. It says he will direct your steps and guide you on a straight path. To yield to the Holy Spirit, do what he chooses for you to do. Number two, if you want to yield to the Holy Spirit, know God's word and you will know God's heart. Know God's word and you'll know God's heart. God will always lead you in agreement with the Bible. He will never tell you anything that is contrary to his word. When you know God, when you know God's word, you'll know how God has worked in the past, the promises he's made to God's people, and the assurances you can live with regardless of the obstacles or the trials that you face. I do not understand Christians who expect to have a relationship with the God of the Word, but do not have a relationship with the Word of God. Imagine you got married, and as soon as your honeymoon was over, your spouse was shipped overseas to serve in the military. Every week for their entire deployment, they wrote Letters to you, and they mailed them back home to you. Sometimes two letters a week. Your spouse talked about everything in those letters. They talked about how they grew up, what their parents were like. 
They talked about their hobbies, their talents, their desires, their opinions. Those letters contained promises that would be fulfilled once you were reunited. We're going to go get a beach house, and we're going to spend a week at the beach, and we're going to go do this. Things they would buy for you. What life would be like once you're together again. And each time you got a letter, you put it unopened in a box. And when that box was full, you got another box. And you stacked all these letters, and you put all these letters in the box, unopened. You never read them. You have no idea all of the information that your lover has been communicating to you over the weeks, months, and years of their absence. Because you refuse to open the letters up, you refuse to know what, what's going on and what they're saying to you. And so when your lover comes back to you expecting you to, to know all the things that they've said, to know their will, to know their heart, to know their mind, to know their favorite ice cream flavor, because it was mentioned in this letter right here. And, and the, the, their favorite candy bar, it was in this one. They expect you to know everything about them that they have communicated to them. You won't know them at all. How disappointed they would be with you. You've had access to them pouring out their heart to you and you refused to engage with them. This is what some Christians do on a regular basis with how they treat God's word. God has made his heart, his mind, his will known to us, and many people won't even take 10 minutes out of their day to open the Bible and to read about it. If you know God's word, you will know God's heart. Then you can be yielded and sensitive to the Holy Spirit when he speaks. Number three. If you want to yield to the Holy Spirit, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit draws us to Christ for salvation. But after that event, Christ longs to baptize us in the Holy Spirit so that we can be effective witnesses for Him. We can know the mind of God in certain situations. God speaks, and we need to listen. And that becomes so much easier when we are fully yielded to the Holy Spirit by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus ascended, he knew the task that his disciples would face to spread the gospel was an impossible task. There were so few of them in comparison to so many uh, tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of people on the face of the planet that needed to hear the message of Jesus Christ. There's no way they could do it on their own. So he made sure that they would never have to do it on their own, and they would never have to do it in their own strength. They thought Jesus would stick around and finish what he started. He rose from the dead. Clearly, you know, this is pretty, pretty amazing and pretty miraculous. And so they asked him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of heaven, uh, restore the kingdom to Israel? He responded in Acts 7 and 8, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
This is important for us because a lot of us feel like we're living in the last days. And so we can sometimes get really obsessed with that. Jesus says the more important thing, trying to figure out when the end is going to come, more important than that is you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power to be effective witnesses for him comes through our relationship with the Holy Spirit. If we have no relationship with him, we will have no power and will not be effective witnesses. I can't even tell you how many times the Holy Spirit has spoken to me about a certain person, a certain situation, a word specific to what that individual is going through. And I don't have some secret knowledge. I can't read people's minds, but God can, and he lets us be his hands and feet and partners if we'll treasure our relationship with the Holy Spirit. These three parables show us the spiritual history of Israel. These three stories in a very short amount of time give us the entire history, the spiritual history of Israel. Like the fig tree from last week and the vineyard from this week, Israel was chosen by God and was expected to be fruitful, yet she, bared to, she failed to bear the fruit of right living. In the parable of the two sons, she rejected and disobeyed the father. She rejected his word. Like the parable of the evil tenants, she rejected God's messengers and rejected the son and killed him. Like the parable of the wedding feast, Israel rejected God's spirit that constantly sent out invitations to come to the Father. Come be set apart. Come and know God. Worship team, come on up. The scary thing for all of us is that we can do the exact same thing as the worship uh, as worship leaders. We can do the exact same thing as the religious leaders. We can see our heavenly father through the same lens that we see our earthly father. If our earthly father was mean, abusive, controlling, insulting, absent, we can see our heavenly father the same way and we can reject him. We can want nothing to do with him. We can read the Old Testament and interpret his methods as vengeful and violent when his purposes were to establish his holiness among a wicked, perverse, and unholy people. We can reject Jesus when we read something that he said that convicts us. We can choose to believe in him but not do what he said. We can like his words about caring for the poor or having compassion on people. But when he points out the hypocrisy and self-righteous attitudes of the religious elite, it might strike a little too close to home for us. We might not take a sharpie to some of his words, but we certainly skip over some. We don't want to deal with the issues that being fully surrendered to Jesus might mean for us, so we just choose not to do it. Or we can reject the Holy Spirit by choosing to ignore his prompting, ignore his presence, ignore times of fellowship with him. We can be afraid of what it would mean to 
fully yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit? What if I fall down? What if I shake? What if I laugh? What if I speak in tongues in front of everybody? What if I prophesy? The God of the universe longs to have a personal and intimate relationship with you. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, it will be more than your physical body can take. That's not something to be afraid of. That's something to desire. That God would touch you physically. It's a feeling unlike anything else. And I promise it's not something to fear. It's something to treasure. We have this opportunity. You, me, to be partners with God. Can you even wrap your brain around that? That God wants you to help him accomplish his purposes on this earth. Because we see all of our limitations and God sees all of our potential. We see all of the impossibilities and yet God sees all the possibilities. We see our unworthiness and he sees us clothed in his righteousness. We see all of our mistakes and he sees us covered by the blood. The time is short. What are you building your life on? What is God in your life? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it a hobby? Is it an addiction? Is it yourself? You cannot be wholly surrendered to two gods. You will love the one and by your actions demonstrate that you do not love the other. One day we will all stand before a holy God who has blessed us with talents and abilities, a career and a family and a life worth devoting to him. What will you say when he asks you what you built your life upon? What will you say when he wants to know who your God really was? What will your behavior right now demonstrate your answer to be? There's only one that is worthy to be God, the creator of the universe, the King of kings, and the Lord of all lords. He will not be relegated to second, third, or fourth place in your life. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And if you're going to build your life on something that's unshakable, something, someone that specializes in the impossible, build your life on him. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't despise or reject God in any way or you risk falling into the same problem that the Pharisees did.